Strap in. This is it. Episode number 183 of No Laugh Track Podcast. My name is Justin Severson. I'm lucky enough to host this thing for Acme Comedy Company. Thank you, Circle of Heat, as always, for letting us play your music there at the beginning. My guest this week, it's the first time he's been here solo with me on the show. He was here uh, in 2015. I think it was April. We did a show with Kostaki Economopolis. He is not here this week, but Ross Bennett is. Hi, Ross. Hello, Justin. <laughs> the uh, I was playing um, uh, Risk on my, I have a, a Risk phone app. Yeah. The the game Risk. It's, yeah. You know when I was when I was uh, a teenager in high school, you know a bunch of them would get together, play a game of Risk like a whole night. Uh huh. You know, think of like you know three hours and just you know this you know six guys and and um you can actually i can get i can burn through a game of risk in about 12 minutes that would you used, well, to, used take to take you. three hours yeah and uh um and and you know in 12 minutes i know whether i've conquered the world or, I, <laughs> or i've been i've been crushed in defeat and when you get crushed in defeat they go to a um uh, a silhouette of a soldier Falling to his knees, and in the background you see the field of battle falling to his knees with his hands up in the air, like, "Oh God, why? Wow. What now? That's dramatic. Why? How dramatic! I have to point out right now that this is the second week in a row that someone has brought up the game Risk on this podcast. Oh, really? How is it? Po- I don't think it's been brought up in, like I said, this 183 episodes. I, I, I think a- it's been brought up twice, and it's today and last week. My son has a this whole theory about you know just the uh, synchronicity at different things. Oh, in, in okay. Life. And uh, that uh, basically this is this is now the time to buy the lottery ticket, right? Um, but this morning, this morning I was at a, I did a radio show, and I brought up uh, Freddie Prince, mm-hmm. and they go, "This is so weird." He goes, "You're the first. This is the first time Freddie Prince ever brought up on the show, and it, it happened twice today." Wow. Me and the previous guest. Yeah, yeah. What are the chances? That is so weird. So should we go buy lottery tickets? Definitely. Yeah. It is $1.3 billion today. I, uh, but you know, after taxes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know. I haven't bought a lottery ticket now for a few years because it's just so easy for me to get sucked into the addictive nature of gambling and lottery tickets and stuff like that. Because cause when is, is, is one ticket... Too many and 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 a hundred is not enough. Correct. You know. Mm-hmm. So, but I'll uh, I may I may just to be part of the part of the crew. Mm-hmm. You know, one point five billion dollars. Yeah. You know, I if have... you, you win that kind of money, and you could actually after you get it, you go by Seinfeld's house. Yeah. And you go, you know, you're you're just a piker. <laughs> you know, you're a wannabe. Yeah. I saw a list this morning of the things you could buy. You could buy if you win the uh, the whole total today solo. You could buy two cheeseburgers for everyone in America for McDonald's. I saw that. You could buy the Pittsburgh Steelers football team. Wow. Yeah. Not both. One or the other. I think I'd go with the football team. Pittsburgh. What's that? Pittsburgh Steelers. Is are, or, or, are less or, expensive than the money that you would win from the lottery tonight. Okay, but but you say which one would you get? You say 
You can, not both. What do you mean not both? Oh, you know, like uh, uh, because if because you would blow most of the money on buying that, you wouldn't have money left over to buy cheeseburgers for everyone. Ah, uh, guy, yeah. you can't do. I got it. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I haven't bought one yet because I always because you had it's astronomical uh, chances to win, but obviously uh, the game Risk has uh, brought it back into my mind, and now I think I'm going to. But you know what? When you, when you end up buying them, I've bought them in the past, and. I'm so confident that I didn't win. It's like a week later, and then I'll check the numbers. Like, oh yeah, I believe I wasn't that, even close. I believe that what the the positive side of lotteries. I won't get into the negative side, okay? Uh, but the positive side of lotteries is for a dollar or two dollars. What you are buying is a period of time where you can have the fantasy of what would I do if. That's what you're really buying True. for two dollars. Mm-hmm. You're allowing yourself two, three, four days. <laughs> to just have that moment where, you know, this would be kind of – what would this be like? Yeah. Well, I was working at the Wild Game last night, and one of the uh, one of my coworkers was like, well, today's my last game. And I said, why is that? He goes, Powerball, man. He ah, goes, and you're one of the guys I like. So he goes, I'll split I'll – even, I'll even give you some. You're one of the guys I like. I went, oh, okay. Great. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, let's see what happens on that one. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to see you at the next game on Friday, but maybe not. I I wish you luck. What would you do? You have any fantasies of what you would do with that money? I would. I just bought a house. Okay. I would pay it off. Mm-hmm. Okay. Make that is all, a fantasy. Make all the improvements on it. And then sell it and buy the house I really want. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's top of the list. That's exactly what I would do. Just you know, get out and and just and um, then I would uh, have a conversation with some sort of a broker uh, because I don't want to be broker. <laughs> and um, and then I would have to make the list of people who I would want to uh, kill, give money to. Yeah. You know, in my personal life. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and then I would drop off the face of the earth. Yeah, you have to. You'd have See, to. See, the thing is, if I was to win the lottery, I couldn't do this anymore. No, there's no. I could never walk on stage without that being the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, would never be able. You'd never be able to walk on stage publicly. I mean, Seinfeld is worth eight hundred mil- million dollars, but he earned it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and people know he earned it, and he has an audience of people who largely respect the fact that he earned it. Mm-hmm. So he's not having people shout out, "Hey, give me a million dollars!" If you won a billion dollars, you couldn't go any place without people saying, "Hey, can you give me a million dollars?" Right, because they think, "Why does he deserve it? That's, we all well, deserve yeah, it." I mean, you, be, you become you become their potential. Uh, source of income. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're they're simply doing what they need to do to try and make a living. And part of their job is asking people with a lot of money from a lottery to to give them money with the thought that some of them will do it. Yeah. It's like in the movie Batman, when Robert Wall first meets Bruce Wayne and he says, "Hey, uh, uh, how about a uh, 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 some money for a for a project?" And, and Bruce Wayne laughs, and then when it's all done, Bruce Wayne leaves, and he tells Alfred and hook him up with so and so for such and such. Yeah, you know, uh huh. It worked for him. Yeah, you know, he asked every billionaire he met for that, and one of them paid off. So maybe that's the key. Just keep asking. Well, 
I've under, you know, I was never this bold sexually. Okay. But there was a guy who's, who's subsequently dead, uh, John Cantu, and he ran the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco in the 70s and the early 80s. And he would stand out front. And every woman that went by during the day, he's working the place during the day, he'd say, do you want to blank? Do you want to blank? Do you want to blank? And about one out of 15 would say yes. So this guy basically blanked on a daily basis. You know, simply because he was playing the numbers. I read a statistic probably 10 years ago, and it has definitely stuck with me. It wasn't the guy you're talking about, but some, I don't know where the study came from, but it was very similar in that. And they said it was one out of 20, that if you ask 20 people, do you want to uh, roll in the hay, that at least one will say yes out of those 20. So just keep asking. And uh, and it requires... It, you, what you basically have to be, you have to be a salesman. Yeah. You are then doing a cold call. And uh, if you're a salesman doing cold calls, <laughs> you have to accept the, 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 the phones hanging up, the net, all that kind of stuff. And you can't have that bother you. Yeah. Okay. But I can't do that because I feel it. Yeah. You know, I can't do cold calls because it hurts so much. It hurts so much when they say no. I, I even the time beforehand worried about what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. Rejection to me uh, is just so painful, and uh, uh, which is I you know in terms of, and in this particular career, it has been. I think it might give me what is my, uh, if you will, if I have any kind of vulnerability on stage, any kind of you know uh-huh. emotional. Uh, uh, gravitas, something that's actually there, uh-huh. that might be it because I do feel okay. However, it makes it so uh, I've uh, I can be very trepidatious on new material. Uh, you know, the, the, the things being different, it's very ch- challenging for me. Sure, and and auditions always just killed me. Yeah, just killed me. The thought of being rejected. Do you do much any auditions anymore? Not a lot, no. no. You know, I mean, it's uh, basically everybody who who was ever going to say no to me saw me <laughs> and said no. And uh, the few people who said yes, uh, they booked me for their comedy clubs. Yeah. You know? you know, this kind of ties in with why you were here in April was the crash and burn. Were you... <laughs> Were you doing 20 minutes? For, to, for people who don't know, I'll just refresh your memory. Crash and Burn, it's a uh, Tim Slagle uh, has put that together, who, by the way, uh, is featuring this week at Acme for you. and uh, Which is unusual. He normally headlines He's here. the headliner. He's been headlining but, here for a uh, long time. But he's very uh, – he and I are very good friends, and he wanted to come up and do this. Yeah. It was that, very nice of him to do this. That, that makes a great show. But he uh, – so you were here doing the uh, Crash and Burn last year, and that's, you know, basically p- working on 20 minutes, trying to come up with 20 minutes of new material in a week in, what, seven shows? In yeah. seven shows, coming up with 20 minutes. How how did that, looking back now that that's over, how did that First go? First off, I wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for Tim Slagle. Okay. Because uh, he had recommended me to the owner here, to the booker, and uh, a number of years ago, and nothing really came out of it. And then Tim asked me to do Crash and Burn. Because he thought I'd be good on it, yeah, and he, and he's been very supportive of me and what I do. And from Crash and Burn, 
the owner did finally get to really see me do what I do. And because of that, I was invited to come and work this week. So, uh, you know, Tim is, uh, he's gold in my book. Yeah. The, uh, what it was like, it was, it, it was a little easier to do new material and to do that because people were expecting not all the material to work. They were expecting the creative process. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause, cause Minneapolis is like a, um, is a one-off in terms of, uh, stand-up comedy creative communities around the country in that you're, you're very hip and supportive of the whole stand-up thing mm-hmm. here. You yep. know, I went to, I was here on Monday night. New talent night. Oh, you were op- open mic. Good for you. You had twenty four people at open mic and no empty seats. In and your, not an no empty seat in the house. Yeah, you know it was, it was remarkable. So I mean, this is uh, for those of you who who are are part of the scene here, either as a as, a, as an appreciator of stand up comedy or a participant. It's a very special place. Yeah, really lucky. So I came, and I frankly, I I, I would like to think that. You know, one of the reasons Jerry Seinfeld is so successful is is how seriously he took his job. And as I understand it, when he first started doing it around 1975 in, in New York City, he spent four years writing four or five hours a day and wow. developing this act mm-hmm. that around 1979, 1980, he took out to Los Angeles to The Tonight Show. And, you know, so he spent like this time honing 90 minutes of, you know, tremendous material. Mm -hmm. I've never had that amount of discipline. I do write some new material, but not as tenaciously as that man does. And so I had a bunch of notes here and there that I brought with me and I put them together uh, with some other ideas that I had. And that's what I worked on that week. Okay. Um, some things worked, some things didn't. Uh, some things worked once and then didn't again, which is that that's the one that hurts the most. I bet. When you when you have an idea, you do it, it kills. And then after that, nothing. Nothing. And because um, I'm one of those comics who, you know, I always felt with, with Robin Williams, if you watched Robin, one of the, the geniuses, I got to watch him a number of times, you know, uh, in successive nights, like at the comedy store and the like. One of one of his most remarkable things was that he could take material. And, uh, uh, you know, he did a lot of material. A lot of what he did was material. Mm-hmm. But he made it seem. He presented it in a manner that made you think that it was being improvised. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Also, he could actually improvise. But deliver it with a confidence that made you think it was material. Okay, wow. yeah. Which is, uh, it was just it, it it was just fascinating to watch you know, what what he was doing. Well, for me, it's the other way. You know, I tend to if I'm if I've written a piece of material, I don't get behind it until after a few nights. When people have laughed at it and told me that it's funny, because yeah. there's nothing worse than like, it's like a, hey, I'm really great, aren't I? No, I guess not. It's like, really funny, isn't it? It's really funny. No, not funny. Okay, not funny. Okay. The, um, uh, and, and, you know, I just, I just, I come from just such a place of, of shame when I perform. 
<laughs> you know, and uh, I, I don't, I, I just, for some reason, it just seems so wrong to give a hundred percent of my energy when I don't know that it's worth it in the audience's eyes. You know, it's like, I, I, I sort of have to almost emotionally, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm giving a tell at the beginning of, I don't know if this is funny either, but you know, <laughs> and, uh, but then after, after I got it down, okay, now, now I can, now I can do this. Uh-huh. Um, uh, sometimes but when I'm on, when I'm on a roll, when, when things are really happening, I can be making things up. I can be improvising and I can put the energy and the focus behind it, you know, but if the laughter starts to die down, you know, uh, my energy will too. I'm, I'm very much motivated by, by the laughter. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing uh positive feedback works better for you than negative. Um, you mean off stage? Mm-hmm. Oh God, no, no, because I'm so embarrassed by the positive feedback. You know, it's uh-huh. like, yeah, you know, it's like, no, no, you shouldn't. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll have a great show. People will compliment me, and I'll be, I'll be pissing on what they're saying. I'll be, you know, no, no, you know, it wasn't really. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I can't. I, I'm, you know, there's a reason. I, I believe that there's a reason for whatever limitations I've had in my career. Uh, it's all been self-imposed. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my big thing lately is I think the key with, with Seinfeld and, and Seinfeld fascinates me. Uh, the older I get, the more I'm fascinated by the man. Uh, I think early on, he removed the concepts of limitations and judgment from his mind. Okay. Okay. So, he, there was never a point, I don't think, where he said, I can go here, but not here. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And I don't think he had that negative, critical, I'm awful voice up in his head. You know, I think a joke wouldn't work, maybe. And you'll go, oh, I got to get that to work. He might be upset that it's not working. But I just I just don't think he had any of the emotional garbage. Or if he did, he cleared it out. Are we sure he's not on. part machine? Huh? Are we sure he's not half machine inside? I... I I believe that, you know, mentally he's a ninja, you know, he's just a, an absolute, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, just a, he's just got a very sharp mind. I, I think that's his power. His great power uh-huh. is how much he's in control Yeah, wow. of his thinking and, and everything. So I'm still battling it, you know. <laughs> With no end in sight, right? <laughs> you know, I suppose in some regards it's my charm. That is my charm, but on the other hand, I think that's part of it. it sure, uh, um, it gets tedious because I think people go, "But you're, but you're good. Why would you have self doubts when you're good?" And it's like you know, you get to get in. You know, there's a number of therapists, yeah, who you need to have a conversation with. They can explain it better than I can. Right, right, right. Don't don't send me down that wormhole of <laughs> worrying about why I'm worrying. <laughs> Did I read, I think I read on your website, rossbennett.com, that you're recording this week? Yes. I'm uh, putting together a new CD. You are. I have a CD that came into my life so surreptitiously. Someone happened to throw a CD, recordable CD, into a recordable CD machine in like 2003 mm-hmm. 
when I was working at a club in um, uh, the Indianapolis area. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't exist anymore, uh, one-liners. And from and it was recorded all wrong. There was two tracks. One track was the line mic, the, the, line, the mic that I was speaking to on stage. Yeah. The other track was from a single microphone hanging over the audience. And it wasn't even a kind of a microphone that's meant to gather a large swath of people. I got you. It's like this kind of a mic, which only has like a 5% or 10% angle. And so it's a 300-seat room, but it's really only recording the strong laughter of about 20 people. (laughs) No. And it's on two separate tracks. Yeah. So I went ahead and I took it and I – Mixed it. I, I went to a, a record, a, a, a CD place, and we and we we mixed it so it was a mono track. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we edited it from like sixty minutes down to about 42, 43 minutes. Broke it up into tracks because my you know my key routines, mm-hmm. and that CD has been gold for me Sirius XM got it and they started playing it on blue collar and they started playing it on their laugh USA yes and it ends up you know my, my material is really strong you know and um so they've played that a lot and it's you know it's increased my visibility and and this thing costs nothing to yeah make. awesome nothing so um you have a guy here in Minneapolis, uh, Dan Schlissel, who has oh, yeah. stand-up records, mm-hmm. and he's made like a hundred CDs. Oh yeah, some of the biggest names. And um, he and I started speaking a couple of years ago, and he wanted to make another one, and so that's what we're doing this week. Perfect. But the challenging thing is, I'm I'm now culling, because the thing is, I'm 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 not like Louis C.K. Louis C.K. writes an act, does it for the year. Then throws it away, writes a new one. He's very, very proud of that, and as he should be. Yeah. And um, but that's not who I am. I'm a guy. I'm more Springsteen. Okay. Where I've got born a, to run. I've got a um, uh, I've got a a book of material that I've developed over the course of my career. Mm-hmm. And you know, pretty much, if you're going to go see Springsteen, you're probably going to hear Rosalita. Yeah. Hopefully. You know, you're going to hear maybe Born in the... There's going to be a number of things that you're going to hear. Or John Cougar Mellencamp. You know, you're going to hear... You're going to hear 30 songs. 12 of them will be from uh, the uh, Little Pink Houses album. Yep. You know, his one album that just went through the roof. Yep. And the other stuff will be the other stuff that you basically put up with. Okay? Yeah. Uh-huh. To hear that. Well, I mean, I've got this... This material that's the nuts and bolts of what I've done to make a living. And I have a tendency to feel compelled to always give a paying audience my best material. Yeah. Maybe five, ten minutes is stuff that I'm working on. Okay. Okay. But so this week I'm 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 trying to fit in all these other bits that have not been recorded before. Yeah. And to get them throughout the course of the week so there'll be enough for a uh a new C D. Is any of the twenty minutes from last year here at Acme Crash and Burn have will that yeah, be a couple of it? things? Yeah, you know, and, and there's going to be more too. I mean, I'm going through those notes and everything right now, uh, but you know, uh, 
is your audience here mo- mostly from the area? Mm-hmm. The because um, you know one of the things is here. You're so nice. You know the 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 demeanor, the nature, the tone of people here in uh, Minneapolis and in Minnesota is just so nice and good natured. I feel like I'm. It almost feels like a theme park. It feels like a theme park, and you're all characters. You know, you're all employees at the Minneapolis theme park. Interesting. Which makes me think that there must be a break room someplace. <laughs> where, where the truth where, comes like, out? Where, like, you know, for you know, every, every 15 minutes every three hours, you can go there and be absolute jerks with each other. Yeah. You know. Talk shit uh, about the outsiders. That's exactly it. And um, and then you got to go back out and be nice again. Yeah. <laughs> um, the... Uh, these are some things I developed during Crash and Burn that are using that that I uh, I'm working that I this one I use in my act all the time now. Um, I don't talk about my age. I don't I don't. A lot of comics these days are, are really into talking about how old they are. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's because my generation of comics are getting older. But I believe it's a bit tedious. So I don't like to ever actually mention how old I am. But I will say this: I recently purchased a bed. And the bed came with a 20-year warranty, see? So while uh, I was paying for the bed, I'm thinking to myself, this is probably going to be my deathbed. So I figured, what the heck? I'll go ahead and uh, uh, get the pillow top. I paid extra for the pillow top because uh, I heard the last few few years you often spend more time in bed. And you're a bit bony. Yes. A bit bony. So um, – I got I got a number of things. That's awesome. That you know that I'll that I'll be uh, uh, weaving in, you know. But I like I said, I've 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 been doing this for a long time, and I've seen all these people come on the scene and become stars. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a fascinating thing to see. And you know, like and Louis C.K. is a great example. He's just, I mean, just so creatively uh, um, um, fertile. You know, so prolific yeah. in what he's been able to uh, uh, develop. Um, and I, I admire it. I just have to – I more or less just have to accept who I am, though. Do you have a name picked out for the uh, CD when it's eventually done? No. 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 I'll, what I'll probably do is uh, we'll wait and see what it, how, how it shakes out and see, you know – Probably, you know, something will stand out. Something will stand out. Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. I um, name it. Name it. Probably my deathbed. <laughs> It'll be something like that, you know. I'm. If uh, you want my vote, uh, yes, I say yes. I say go with that. I was telling you that uh, we we talked a bit. We had some lunch before we uh, recorded. We were talking a bit, and um, we had a we had Reuben sandwiches. Yes. At the, um, uh, is it Sticks? Sticks is the restaurant at here. Sticks yeah. restaurant here at the Acme Comedy Club, but they're off their lunch menu. Yep. Uh, and it was an interesting. It it had a um, it had a Minnesota feel to it because it was made on a dark bread. Yeah. As opposed to a New York Jewish rye. Yeah. And this critique is coming from a a Jew that lives in New York. Correct? No, it's not. No, because I'm not Jewish. You're not Jewish. And. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll probably do this routine uh, this week also because people look at me and they assume I'm Jewish. 
like like you did. They yeah. look at me and they look at me and they assume I I'm Jewish. I could swear that came up last time, but it must I've not actually have. I've actually had uh, I'll, I'll I will what'll happen is because I got Jewish friends who think I'm Jewish, you know, and and, and what'll happen is they'll talk to me as if I'm Jewish, you know, and they'll go, Ross, you know, you wanna you wanna come over if I you know whatever, and I you know, and I'd say you know I I you know I'd love to come over and uh, you know celebrate whatever the hell it is you're talking about, but. <laughs> Uh, you need to know I'm not Jewish. And uh-huh. I actually have one friend, Lenny Marcus. He goes, are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> but I have to tell people I'm not Jewish. Yeah. Because if I don't, then later, when Jews find out, they, they actually get angry. I would imagine. Because they feel deceived. Yeah. And when non-Jews find out, they get angry because they feel they've been unnecessarily tolerant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be doing that bit tonight. That's funny. That's going to be on the CD. That is funny, Ross. That is very funny. Uh, well, I'm glad I made that mistake. Yeah, <laughs> because it led to that. And and I'm and and of course, uh, my whole thing is that I'm a New Yorker, but I'm not from New York City. Right. I did know That's that. That's the other thing is that I I'm from that. I'm from the rural western part of New York State, about five and a half hours west of New York City, 250 miles. Uh, uh, the Finger Lake region, my hometown, Hornell, New York, a small town, uh, just on the outskirts of a Walmart. <laughs> um, but that's, that's a big part of what I, how I branded myself. Yeah. yeah and I sure. feel that what I'm selling is the fact that, you know, people have this vision of New York as being the city and they have no realization about the rest of, the, of, of, of New York state. Right. You know, back, if you go back to like the, 1800s, early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, when people would talk about going out west, mm-hmm. they were talking about where I am from. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, because when all it was was the 13 colonies. I suppose. There was no out farther west, west. There was no farther west. Was the Finger Lake region of New York. Yeah. You know, what was the, what was the biggest event that happened in terms of commerce in the first half of the of the 19th century was the Erie Canal. Yeah. Was you know was was putting a canal over the, the northern part of New York state. That was big 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 thing. Sure. Changed it changed the United States in terms of uh, the, the you know the 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 ability of it being a a prosperous nation. Yeah. Amazing. I was saying I want to go back now. I was saying that um when before uh, when we first uh, met up this morning, and I was saying, you know, you asked like, "Well, what kind of things that you know you want to talk about?" And I told you that I love because Andy Smith, who was part of the Crash and Burn uh, last year, she described you as lis- listening to you as like watching the History Channel. <laughs> and but that's when a- I brought that up to you, you have some strong thoughts on that. All I said was that it's. A double-edged sword because you you want to be relevant to today and to an audience today, and I don't want to be someone. Oh yeah, he's the one who talks about back then, mm-hmm. you know. And and it's hard for me. It's hard because I'll, I'll be around young comics. You know, I love being around young comics, but they will speak about things that I have. I have actual physical knowledge to okay that i was actually there and they will speak about it and they don't have the facts straight 
And my question I ask, do I, do I need to tell that? Do I, is it my job to straighten this out? And, and what's happening is time, as time goes on, I just let it go. I just let it go because I don't want that conversation. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, there had to be a point. <laughs> there had to be a point where people would say things about the Kennedy assassination. And Jackie for years would have said, no, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> what happened was, was, and, and then finally she says, you know, I just, the hell with it. Oh, you know? Whatever. Check the video. If that's what they think Jack did, then God bless him, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, some people are there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question is, do I want, do I want to make that point? Yeah. You mentioned, uh, we got some of the, these great stories from you last time when uh, you were on with Kostaki. And one of them, we don't need to go into it, but uh, just here's an example that you were talking about you uh, getting married on the stage at the comedy store. Yeah. And Sam Kinison. This is just a perfect example of how these names come up and you have a connection to them and that Sam Kinison was supposed to have this. Am I remember he coming? was going to be the minister. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is before he's a star. He's not a star. He's just a comic who's looking for stage time and he was had wormed his way into, like we all did, into the graces of Mitzi Shore. Yeah. And a very talented guy. And, um, but he, had, but he had not become a star. He had not become a household name. Yeah. And, he was going to officiate our wedding because we were putting together a comedy wedding and he didn't, he didn't show up. He wasn't around. I'm certain he was out, you know, high, Yeah. uh, for, as we got closer to the rehearsal. So I had to let him go. And I had a friend, an actor friend who had one of those universal life ministries. Yeah. You know, he, he, he apparently he knew how to fill out a form and, but he was a sitcom actor. Oh. He was a sitcom actor. Nobody who you would know. I mean, you know, if you look at his, his, his thing on IMDb, not a lot of stuff. But like many people in Los Angeles, a very talented actor who went out there, got some jobs, but didn't, you know, didn't get a lot of jobs. Yeah. Well, I wrote the, uh, I wrote the, uh, the ceremony. I took, you know, took the, the ceremony as writ in a, uh, uh, as it officially is the matrimony ceremony. And I, as a comic, I punched it up. Sure. Okay. I punched it up. Punched it up. I punched it up, you know, <laughs> great and great lines. And they were all best. They're all based in reality. It's always important to me to have it somehow based in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, lines like, um, uh, do you Ross, you know, uh, look at, look at, look at Jan and, um, Promise to love, honor, and obey, sickness and in health, forsaking all others, except, of course, when you're on the road. <laughs> okay? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then he does the same line to her, and I'm, my head's kind of shaking proudly, and it's except, of course, when he's on the road. Right. Okay? And so great lines like that, you know, in, 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 the, uh, in the face of uh, – um, uh, Mitzi, uh, in, in the face of, you know, t- t- talking about in, as we perform this ceremony in the face of this company, Mitzi and God. And I whisper in his ear, and then he goes, Mitzi, God, and this company. Okay. <laughs> That's great. For those who might be listening, Mitzi Shore was the owner and the, 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 the you know, the central source of power at the comedy store, you know. Polly Shore's mom. Polly Shore's mom. 
And um, so lines like that that are based in reality. Yeah. And uh, I think we got a better thing having uh, my guy do it. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, because his name was um, uh, Charlie Murphy. Not Charlie Murphy. Not not Eddie Murphy's brother, right, but Charlie Murphy. Say, we know who that is. And uh, And Charlie Murphy took the script and presented it as an actor. Whereas I'm certain Sam, as soon as he started doing it, he would have thrown the script away and started doing his whole screaming thing. Yeah, you're right. So the show would have been about him as opposed to about this event between Jan and I. So it was it was the perfect thing to do. Yeah. And it, and it's it's better to have in the story that that Sam was supposed to do it, but he didn't show up because he was he was stoned. Yeah. As sure. opposed to uh, that. Did you ever get a follow up with him? Like, well, I remember him coming to the house with a present. No, no, he came <laughs> to the house, uh, uh, wondering uh, what's going on. I said, Sam, you weren't there for the rehearsal. Uh huh. I had to replace you. And he was, you know, that look of disappointment. I said, oh, okay. But he came to the wedding. Oh, okay. And, and it's a, I have a picture. I think there's a picture online. Might be a picture on, on my website of uh, uh, with Sam. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I guess I didn't At the wedding. That. Yeah. All right. How about some uh, current event here stuff? Uh, we just lost David Bowie. You know, it's so funny. Uh, I don't know why I say that. I often use phrases like that, which are not connected in any way other than it's a space filler. A lot of people do. I was not a big music person when I was growing up. Okay. I never bought a David Bowie record. Okay. I never bought a Who record. You know, I bought George Carlin. Okay. Uh, Were you ever buying uh, Beatles? When that stuff was never new? when that was ne- never in at that time. No. Now later in my later once I was in, when, once I met Jan, uh, my my the woman who become my wife. Once I met Jan, she had pop records. Okay. Okay, so I became aware of it through her. But I, by this one, I'm 23, 24, 25, and what, and then and then some records are being bought. But I'm buying records uh, from previous, you know, from five, ten years before. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I don't, I don't, I don't listen. I never listened to, um, Abbey Road until like 1980. Okay. I mean, I've heard the songs on the radio a few times, but sure. I was never connected to yeah. pop culture that way. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I, I was in love with George Carlin and, 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 and things like that. Yeah. That's the records that I bought. That's the stuff that I spent my time and money on. Um, so I was never particularly connected to David Bowie. Okay. He never really, you know, he didn't speak to me. Yeah. You know, cause I didn't, you know, that, that wasn't really my, my world. I, I did feel for it when he passed away because Jan, who my wife, she passed away, you know, 30 years ago or 29 years ago now. She, she loved him. Oh. You know, she would, she had all of his records. She had, spiky haircut like him <laughs> nice. and um and she was very connected to that so it it made me think of her oh you know and i'm fairly certain that, that that if there's a heaven uh she would have been right there you know screaming when he when he arrived sure you know oh that's really neat wow but i no, uh it's, it, it didn't it didn't 
I, I found it interesting how many people, uh, my age, you know, thirties, forties that, uh, had such a connection to him and all, all these people writing about, uh, you know, I was a weirdo and he made me feel okay about it. Like I, I, I wasn't a fan when I was a teen, probably would have helped me, <laughs> but I wasn't, I was listening to weird Al and rap music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I would be more inclined to listen to, uh, uh, novelty songs. Yeah. As opposed to pops, the only pops, and then the only pop songs I really liked when I would hear them, I tend to like ones that have a narrative story to them. Okay. Mm-hmm. I tend to like, uh, Johnny Cash, a boy named Sue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because there's a narrative story to it. I tend to like Marty Robbins, El Paso, because there's a narrative story to it. Yeah. I tend to like Bruce Springsteen's Rosalita. Yeah. Because there's a narrative story to it. Yeah. I get that. You know, I find, I, I took my son to go see him about, I know, I'm going to say 20 years ago. Yeah. When I think the first time he was touring with the E Street Band after having not been with them for like 10 years or so. And we got tickets up in Buffalo and we're actually, and we, and we somehow traded up and we got seats right above Clarence. We're looking right down on Clarence. Yeah. So we're like right down in that part of the stage. And I had not listened to a lot of Bruce Springsteen over the years, but I knew it was important that Nash and I should go see this. And I, I, I had heard when I finally heard Rosalita, and I listened to it like five times in a row. It was like, wow, yeah, wow, because there's that one line in it where he's like saying, "You tell your father I just got a record contract." You know that that whole that that just point of just shouting out joy at his at his success. And I'm wondering, and he closed the concert. He closed the concert with that song. With, with and it was song. Like, it was really cool. That's for awesome. Me. Really cool. For wow. Me. Now, um, I, uh, yeah. Oh, if I remember correctly, when we talked, uh, you know, last year, you were, you started comedy a little later than a lot of people. I don't know. I don't, uh, I. I don't know if, I don't think, I, I don't think I necessarily started it later. I think that I had always been, um, something resonated with me when I would listen to comedy growing up. Mm-hmm. I was compelled by the thought of, of stand-up comedy, but being a Gentile boy from this little town in Western New York state, who your only connection to stand-up comedy is if there's a comic on the Ed Sullivan show. You have to remember when, when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, I wasn't watching to see the Beatles. I was watching to see, uh, Alan and Rossi, the comedy team. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what I found, uh, interesting that night. Wow. I didn't really care about the Beatles. Okay. <laughs> I want to see, I want to see Marty Allen. He's a funny guy. Yeah. Um, so that's my only connection is what I would see on, on, on mainstream TV, which is all there was. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until I was in the army. I'm, I'm, I was actually at West Point. And while I'm there in my plebe year, 1975 to 76, Saturday Night Live came on, but I wasn't aware of Saturday Night Live because we couldn't watch TV during the plebe year. Sure. Okay. And, but then the beginning of my second year, we were allowed to go in the day room and watch some TV once in a while. And I saw Saturday Night Live. And I saw these people who are about my age, maybe a couple of years older, 
having the greatest time in the world. Yeah. And then this guy, Steve Martin, who was just so wow. And it was like, it was like, my God, how do you do this? How is it they get to do that? Right. Okay. How is it? How did that happen? And then that winter, uh, Freddie Prinz passed away. He, he, uh, uh, shot himself and he was like one year older than I was. And he had had this, he'd become a stand up comic and had this whole thing happen for him. And now he's gone. And I just had the sense, you know, it's sort of a now or never thing. If I don't, if I don't give this thing a shot, I'll never know. Sure. And if I stay at the academy, I'm going to have two more years at the academy. I'll owe the army five years. That's seven years. Okay. And when you're 22 years old, that's like a third of your life, another seven years. And I didn't think that I would, I didn't think that I would be able to just see whatever happened that way. So I, I had abandoned every, I had to abandon everything, uh, to, to give this thing a shot. How, how does that, how does that go over when you tell people in the army you're leaving? Well, you know, first off, it was a big disappointment to my father, uh, who was a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel. Oh. And, wow. um, okay. I mean, it was, it was enough of a disappointment for him when I dropped out of my first college and enlisted in the army. Okay. Oh, okay. That's what happened. That, that, you know, that really, that just jerked his chain in a, you know, uh, but, you know, my father and I, like many fathers and sons, had massive issues between us that, you know, you, you don't know how much, you don't know how angry you are until after he's dead. And then you don't know how much you loved him underneath that anger until years after that. Oh, okay. Um, so, I, but I've often said that I actually went to West Point because deep down I knew that when I left, it would crush him. <laughs> oh, jeez. But that's... <laughs> That's just a theory. Yeah, right. Um, I remember the tactical officer at our company, because the West Point's broken up into uh, four regiments. Each regiment has three battalions, and each battalion has three companies. Uh-huh. Okay? And uh, and a company has maybe 100 to 120 cadets. At least that's the West way it was when I was there. I think I have a few – I think I have a smaller uh, group of soldiers there, uh, cadets there now. Okay. But uh, – and you have a – tactical officer, a guy who's like a, a major, a captain or a major in the, in the military, in the army, who is your tactical officer. He oversees the company. Uh, he's not in charge. The, the, the core is actually run by the cadets. So you have a company commander, you have a battalion commander, you have all the jobs are filled out by the cadets, but you have an, an army officer who's overseeing the operation. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, um, and I remember going into him uh, and telling him I wanted to resign. And he's, oh man, he goes, I just, he goes, I, he goes, that's just, and you're exactly what we want here. Hmm. I'll never forget him saying that, which I can't believe that I was what they wanted there, you know, but I think it ends up, they're not looking for cookie cutters. They're not looking for cookies that are just pressed out. They're looking for individual personalities and, and individual free-thinking individuals who are willing to work within the system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And so I probably offered that to him. I could see uh, that. But uh, – and I wonder if he had begged if I would have stayed. Yeah. I mean, so there was no 
It was, there's no really second thoughts. It was, no, no, this is, I'm, I'm doing this. No, at that moment, there was, when he said that there was a moment of a second thought, looking, I haven't even thought about this for forever, for yeah. almost, almost 40 years. Wow. Uh, I mean, I mean, it'll, it'll, it's 76 now. So I resigned 39 years ago from like right now. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if he had been a little more forthright, uh, what would have happened, you know? I remember when I started doing stand up comedy, about two years later, I'm working in Sacramento, California, and I had a couple of jokes about West Point and the like. And uh, this guy comes to me afterwards, he goes, You're a very funny guy. And at this point, I had, I had, I, had, I had dyed my hair black, and it was sort of in a, a big sort of a rooster thing kind of a, a thing, and I had sort of a punkish kind of an attitude. And this guy comes to me, he goes, he goes I spent uh, 20 years in the Army. I was, a, you know, I was a staff sergeant or a sergeant major or whatever. And he goes, uh, I want you to know you're a very funny guy, but I thank God that I never had to salute you as an officer. Oh, boy. I said, okay. He goes, no. He goes, you don't understand. I thank God that I never had to salute you as an officer. So. Um, thank you. Apparently. There are some people who had issues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With it, you uh -huh. know? And, uh, yeah. You asked, how do they, how do they react? They react the way they do. But I think the truth is they only want people who want to be there. Mm hmm. Oh, that's, you know? Yeah, that's what it should be. You only want people who want to be there. Mm hmm. The class that I think, you know, they allow you to leave. Any time up until the beginning of your third year, your junior year, uh, and they and when I was there, they called it your, your cow year. You were you were plebes, yearlings, uh, cows, and then firsties. That's what that was the name of, of the different classes. Okay, and you didn't owe the army time until you took your seats for your first class of your cow year, your third year. Gotcha. So up until that moment. You could say, I'm out of here. And you wouldn't owe them anything. Okay. But once, but if you left after that, you would owe them like three years as an enlisted man. Ah. Okay. okay? And then if you go to graduation, uh, after you graduate, you owe them five years as an officer. Okay. So, um, that's why I said when I resigned, I was looking at like, if I go any further, there's going to be seven more years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, the people I have the most respect for I mean, is was the class of I forget what year it was it would probably been the class of two thousand and two or two thousand and three because they nine eleven happened okay nine eleven happens and they're yearlings okay now. We go into this whole war in Iraq, everything that starts over in Afghanistan and everything. So now it's the summer of 2002. Okay, now these people did not go to the academy with the thoughts of getting involved in a shooting war. True. Okay? Yeah. And all of a sudden, when they took seats, when the class of, I guess it would be 2004, when the class of 2004 took their seats in the fall of 2002... They were making a commitment to the knowledge that they were going to be, you know, when they graduate, you know, they're, they're going into the shit. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, they deserve a lot and, of respect. And uh, it, it's like people who enlisted afterwards. I just have so much respect because they know what they're getting into. I can't even imagine. You know, they, they know they're making a choice and that's what they want to do. You know, my class, class of 79, never lost anybody in battle. Okay. I mean, they were, they were probably senior officers over there. I don't believe they lost anybody in battle, at least up when I, I would keep track of things. Sure. But all the classes from 2002 on, or, or from the, from the late nineties on. Yeah. If you look back over their class registers, they've got classmates who were lost in battle. Sure. You know, young lieutenants, 22, 23, 24. Yeah. You know, who come back to the academy not five years later for their first reunion, but two years later to be buried. Yeah. Amazing. I remember back when I was 18 and those 17, 18, those phone calls start coming. You know, if it's not the letters in the mail to, you know, for a college, hey, check us out. It's the guy from the, the army recruiter calling. And, you know, this is when I was 18, uh, you know. This is, there's no caller ID. I didn't know who was calling on the, on the other side. If I knew, I probably would have avoided it. He's we, cold calling. Yeah. We didn't, he's cold he's calling. Cold call, That's it all right. comes around there, Ross. And he knows yeah. that about one out of 20 mm -hmm. is going to talk about full circle. Is yes. going to Absolutely. be willing to say yes. Absolutely. And I had a barrage of excuses that my mom gave me. And boy, that guy had one right back at me for everything I said. It's a good salesman. Yeah. I didn't enlist. I went to college and then dropped out of college. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, no. Well, don't you, what do you, uh, who's going to pay for college then? Huh? You're on, you got a rich Uncle Larry? Well, no, my Uncle Larry. You know my Uncle Larry? Like, well, I do have an Uncle Larry, but he's like, uh, no, he works at like a turkey farm. I don't think he makes a lot of money. Oh, then oh, how about a grandparent? No, the, he was a farmer and he's retired. They don't have a lot of money. Oh, well, how are you going to do it? I, Look, man, my mom's not going to let me enlist, all right? I'm still listening to her. Really? How long are you going to listen to your mom? You know, Your just... mom's not going to let you enlist. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the lamest? Did he thing? actually say that? Did he actually say, how long are you going to listen to her? Yeah, he did. Oh, yeah. wow. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Wow. Oh, yeah, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Sitting there in the living room, my parents, uh, you know, uh, rotary phone. Oh, yeah. I can I can picture it well and getting off the the phone with that going. Jeez, dodge that! That's not even in front of me, and I'm feeling pressured here. You got to dodge the metaphorical bullet before you actually dodge the physical. Yeah, bullet. yeah, no shit. And one of them's a lot easier to do, no doubt about it. Um, what else? I don't I don't want to take up too much more of your time here, Ross. How much? Uh, anything First else? First off, I'm in Minneapolis. It's cold outside. <laughs> it is. It's I got nothing going on. <laughs> Until a show tonight at eight o'clock. <laughs> so don't throw this thing out to me. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I got nothing All right. to do, Justin. Fair so enough. I'm here uh, until you're ready to say, you know, it's a wrap. All right. Fair enough. Well, I do want to say, um, th this is a good time to throw out there where, uh, like where you are in social media and how often you're active on there. I'm not, I'm not as active as I should be, but, uh, I have Facebook and Twitter yeah. as, as they all do, you know, and, and, um, uh, so it's, uh, at, at Ross comic is Twitter. Okay. And, uh, I don't know, Ross Bennett 
comedian. I got two Facebook accounts. One of them is the uh, fan page. Yeah. And one of them is just me. And, uh, and you can, uh, if you go to, I don't know how you do it, but somehow if you put down Ross Bennett Facebook comedy, uh, in Google, something's going to pop up. Sure. You'll sure. be able, you'll be able to figure it out a lot quicker than I will. Uh, you just reminded me. I got a website. Okay. RossBennett.com. Mm-hmm. Which is how I got that website is nothing short of a miracle. Oh. Because I, I'd wanted it. And it was like owned by like a dentist or a guy with a shoe store or some such thing. And so I had Ross Bennett comic dot com. Sure. Okay. And I had Ross Bennett dot net, but I didn't have Ross Bennett dot com. And one day I just happened to type in Ross Bennett dot com and it was available. The guy had let it go. Oh, so I jump on it right then. I pay for it for the next 20 years. Nice. Right on time, you know, right there. Yeah. Now, if you type in Ross Bennett, there's another Ross Bennett who is a uh, successful clothing designer mm-hmm. out of Texas. Yes, I saw that. Okay. And I met him. Oh, really? Walking down the street of New York, I was going to the comic, the comedy cellar, and I'm walking down a street in New York, and there goes Ross Bennett. I go, what? He goes, I'm Ross Bennett. It's what? And, he, and it was that guy, and I have a more, I have a very distinctive look, and so he recognized me because he had seen it, and uh, I met the guy by complete, just bumped into each other. Wow. And I told him, I said, I said, I have two, I have two. Uh, retirement plans, one of which involves tremendous success for me, right? You know, and earning money for that. The other is tremendous success for you, that you want to buy my domain, <laughs> domain name. Yes. <laughs> and how is he doing? I think he's doing well. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't had any that inquiries. Haven't any inquiries. Okay. Okay. You know. <laughs> Do you know that like. 20 years ago, someone bought beer.com for $77 million. Wow. You know, when, when all those names started popping, you know, when, when the domain industry started up, people just bought up every oh, word I they know. could possibly think sure. of. And uh, some of those people did very, very well. Mm-hmm. And now they've got like the, uh, they've ran, I think they, haven't they run out of domains and now it's like, uh, you know, dot .xxx to get like a, to a, uh, They've run out of like porn site names, and now they're like dot .xxx. That's what you told me off the air, at least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, I um. What uh, and then I saw on your website as well, RossBennett.com, that uh, has your calendar posted there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wish I was more. You know, some people just they get it that that. They got to spend an hour working on their web every day, mm-hmm. you know, but I just don't, I don't do it, but, um, it's a new website. I've, I've, uh, gone to this new, uh, development site and, uh, it's a cute site. I think it's an okay site. What, 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 what'd you find that you wanted to know about? Yeah. I, I went on when I was, remember I told you I listened to the la- the last episode that you were on of no last right. track. So to find that, the easiest way I thought to find that was to write in a Google search, um, your name and then the name of the podcast. So I got to Ross Bennett 
and then the first two letters of no laugh track i got to know and it auto-completed some choices to ross bennett colonoscopy <laughs> and then i clicked on that and it it went to stories about you it went to my actual colonoscopy <laughs> what 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 what's the story there what About the colonoscopy. Yeah, was there oh, some? No, I just I I don't I don't know what the web thing was. Yeah, but I have a routine about a colonoscopy. Yeah, which and you know it's so funny. I I was I went to a club. I worked at a club that I hadn't worked at for fifteen years, and uh, the guy, uh, as we were he 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 was talking about all the older comics who were there, and basically he mockingly talked about their colonoscopy bit. Because they all have like a colonoscopy bit, mm-hmm. which made me embarrassed because I have a colonoscopy bit. And and I happen to think mine is unique and it's special. Did not do it at that club that week, I'll tell you right now. Sure, I bet. But, um, uh, but my whole one is – and I'm – and I'm – and I'm uh, – I mean this – is that I want to get people laughing about it who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s. So when the doctor tells them it's time, they won't put it off. Yeah. Because there's some people who they get to the time and they and they just keep putting it off because of embarrassment, you know, whatever. And so I figure if I can get if I can get people through laughter to go ahead and do it when the doctor tells them to do it, Maybe in the course of my career, I can save a couple of lives. You know what? I think that's more effective than the guys growing mustaches for the month of November. Because I think that's what the message is supposed to be for that, is for guys to go get, you know, health care checkups. Okay. Because, you know, like what you're saying, guys are known to put things off and, oh, I'm fine and I'm invincible. Yeah. What's the mustache thing? It's called Movember. Movember. And it's, you've never heard of this? Oh, yeah. No. It's huge here. I don't know, like the Minnesota Wild Hockey team, like all the players grow mustaches and a lot of like the radio station, you know, uh, person personalities, they'll grow mustaches for the month. What is, and, is, is and, Colon Awareness Month November? It's not just colon. It's just like men's health. But that's okay. you know, obviously one of the uh, biggest tests that, you know, men should have. Isn't Mo a uh, um, a pejorative uh, term for, for gays? I don't know. I think so. Oh, I don't know. So it's a it's an interesting uh, use of terminology. Yeah. Well, I will say uh, not to get too serious here, but my father had uh, he's alive, but uh, he had colon cancer and had to have some of his colon removed about five years ago. So you're right; it is pretty damn important. Yeah, I mean, I lost my wife to breast cancer, and so I'm always you know that's my thing. You know, ladies, take care of yourself. Sure. You know, don't if you think there's a problem. You know, get your examinations. If you think you feel something, you know, do something about it. Yeah. My current girlfriend, sweet lady, she lost her father to colon cancer about three or four years ago. Yeah. And um, she gave me one of his ties. And anytime I work during a week, at some point during the week, I wear that tie. Oh. You know, and it always makes me think of her, and it makes me think of this guy I never knew. Wow. It's a great tie. Wow. It's a great tie. It has porpoises on it. Little <laughs> tiny porpoises. Very, very well uh, uh, designed. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the truth is this thing touches all of us so much. Mm-hmm. Everybody has people in their lives. You know, it's it's just it's just a numbers game. Yeah. 
it's a numbers game. And if, you know, if, we, if, if we're, if we're healthy, you know, we just, the older we get, the more we should just be grateful. But it's that's anyways, that's why I have that bit. Okay. And I'll be doing that bit this week because that's never been recorded. Oh, okay. At least not on a CD. Yeah. I think what I saw, then when I hit that link, it went to some YouTube videos where that must have been like the, uh, you know, the title somebody slapped on it. I just, <laughs> that was an odd thing to pop up when I'm searching for my own podcast. And then, <laughs> colonoscopy, sure. What's this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's all I got, Ross. Well, this is, uh, We've we've hit the we've hit the time that we usually wrap these things up, so we should probably do that. Yeah, this is a. You know, I I just feel very. I I don't want to be too. I don't want to seem to be insincere, but I just I feel very fortunate to be here in Minneapolis. You know, this stage, this is one of the most unique and uh, special clubs in the country because you have an owner here who is who actively has a creative spark inside of him that where he's trying to put creative talent, good talent on his stage. Uh, oh, he's involved. He takes, he yes. takes chances out. He, he goes out. Sometimes he goes uh, outside the norm, mm-hmm. you know, to bring people, you know, in here mm-hmm. that might. And so I never thought that I would be working here. You know, because at this point in my life, I just didn't think that I would, you know, would would I be what they wanted here? Yeah. I, mean, I work on cruise ships, for God's sakes. But, you know, I go out and work on cruise ships. I don't work on cruise ships all the time. It may be 10, 12 years, two weeks a year. Yeah. And I have people come up to me afterwards and go, you know, you're not the kind of act we see on cruise ships, you know. And so I know that what I do is different. It's special. Yeah. It's, it's unique. And uh, it's just really cool to be have someone recognize it. And to want me here. Yeah, that's great. And uh, and I will say, and last night it was a perfect example, the people, the energy makes you want, as a comedian, makes you want to to create, to take chances, to go outside of my act. Because that's, you know, a lot of times you walk on stage and, you know, it's like, I'm just, you know, do your act, do your act, do your act, you know, because that's what I'm being paid for, to do my act. Right. And, but I look out here. And there's just so much, you know, support that I'm willing to have the, the, the boundaries of my bits become porous and things just sort of start flowing out. Perfect. You know, this side or that side, you know, and so some real special stuff, you know, happens. Yeah. Already has happened here. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the I'm, week. We barely know each other, but I have to say I'm very happy for Thanks, you that Justin. this is happening. I really sincerely mean that. It's, and I, of course, you know, I, you know, I agree with, I don't have the same perspective because I'm not a working comic. I'm just a huge fan, but, uh, I mean, this club is the best. I can't imagine. If nothing, you know, they have the best chairs. <laughs> yeah. Those are the best chairs. We're staying, we're doing this on stage <laughs> at the club, looking out over an empty room. Yeah. Okay. The chairs, I'm sitting in one of the chairs. I've never, sat in a comedy club chair that felt like this. Yeah. There was a club. I could tell you the name of the club. It's the, it was the Funny Bone in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. The Funny Bone in Pittsburgh, which doesn't exist anymore. You see where this story is going. And uh, uh, there's other Funny Bones around the country that, that he was he was one of the original owners. And when, and when they 
divested themselves when they broke up the company, he got these, he got like three clubs yeah. and one of them was Pittsburgh. Okay. So when I go to Pitt, and he had three different locations in Pittsburgh and I worked at all three of them. His third location was just this big cavernous room, a giant cavernous room with a, a concrete floor and the chairs were those plastic lawn chairs. Oh my God. Okay. No. Plastic long chairs. Now, you cannot move a plastic lawn chair without a a, a screeching <laughs> kind of a yeah. sound in a large cavernous room with a concrete floor. Oh, so no sound around. is being absorbed any place. No, just bouncing around. And you know these chairs were probably about seven bucks each. You know, and they're great because they stack. Yeah, in bulk, you know, they're probably yeah. less. And it was. I remember going to the club when he finally got to the third location and everything about it was set up to go against being a successful. I mean, it's like, it, it just, it boggled my mind. It boggled my mind. Yeah. The stage had in the corner, the lighting came in in such a way that the first three rows were, had as much light on them as the comedian. Okay. And I remember saying, and, 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 and the sound because of the cavernous floor, the concrete floor, the place just echoed. Yeah. It just echoed. You know, this is a perfect room because it's got, it's what everything a comic wants, a low ceiling. Okay. So the, so the laughter doesn't, it doesn't escape. Mm -hmm. See, the laughter will escape. You can kill in a cavernous room. The laughter escapes, but here it's all kept down. It's nice and low. Uh, and, and that place, it was just, it was just, and he had giant paintings on the wall that somebody had done of different comedians, famous comedians in uh, various um, uh, uh, classic pictures. You know, so like they had the famous Blue Boy picture, but it was with Adam Sandler's gotcha. face, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. American Gothic with like Lily Tomlin and, you know, Bob Newhart sure. or whatever. Sure, sure. They had a picture, they had the Last Supper picture. Jesus with the 12 disciples and Jesus was Lenny Bruce. Okay. And all the others were various comedians, you know, Leno apparently was in the Judas position completely by accident. And I believe Jay actually called him. Like, Let's go. What do, you, what do you got me in the Judas spot for? <laughs> the, um, but the point being that all the Christians in town would come in and see this giant pen. We're talking about 20 feet by 40 feet painting. Wow. And for them, it was sacrilegious. Right. You know. Yeah. And, uh, and then in, in the bar area, the guy, what the guy did for a hobby is he took art photographs, nude art photographs. So he would go in and there's naked pictures of women, which is fine, but naked photographs of women all over the walls. Everything in this place it's working made against. it so people were going, you know, I don't think I necessarily want to come back here. Yeah. You know? Completely and, working uh, against and then, and then an improv opened up uh, down the street. Yeah. And, you know, then it was like, you know, okay, that's it. They only needed to be half decent. So my point is, you got great chairs here. <laughs> you got really great chairs. Darn right. I don't disagree. And I will say... uh 
complete disclosure here. A few years ago, there were a few chairs in here where you would sink down and they could use some repair. Those are all gone now. Uh-huh. Were they the same kind of chair? Yes. Oh, they were simply these chairs that had broken. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it takes great care of this place. It's a wonderful place. Damn right. Ross? Thank you, Justin. Continued success, sir. Right. I think uh, I have a feeling I'm going to see you here again next year. I have a strong. I like the idea, but it's but it's only Wednesday. Okay, <laughs> talk to talk to me on on Saturday after the show. So. Actually, talk me after the second show on Friday. You know, if you read uh, Steve Martin's book on stand up, mm -hmm. uh, he has a line in it, and he said this before. People ask him, "Why did you get out of stand up comedy?" Why'd you stop doing live stand-up? And he goes, his answer was, second show Friday. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. All right.